Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, calling for a humanitarian corridor. So that essential aid like food, fuel and water can be delivered to civilians in Gaza. It is imperative that this happen. The Prime Minister says a pathway must be made to get food, water and supplies to the people of Gaza. As the Conservative leader questions why the Trudeau government has not moved against Iran, which funds Hamas. Will the government accept the conservative, common-sense bill to criminalize the IRGC in Canada? Coming up, we will speak to Israel's ambassador to Canada about the situation in Israel and in Gaza. Also, the federal government says it will amend its environmental impact assessment law, reacting to last Friday's Supreme Court ruling. Coming up, we'll get some reaction from the Alberta Premier. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. UN officials are once again expressing concern about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza today. The UN aid chief saying that the territory's health system and hospitals are, quote, collapsing before our eyes with water, fuel and medical supplies quickly running out. Meanwhile, the military wing of Hamas claimed to fire another round of missiles on Tel Aviv and Jerusalem today as leaders around the world and here in Ottawa expressed their concerns about the conflict that has already claimed thousands of lives. Canada fully supports Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international law. And in Gaza, as elsewhere, international law, including humanitarian law, must be upheld by all. Even wars have rules. There will be and there can be no negotiating with Hamas. Hamas can only be destroyed. Let it be said that the, Palestinian, the suffering of the Palestinian people is a tragedy. Every innocent human life, Palestinian or Israeli, Jewish, Muslim, Christian or otherwise, is of equal precious value. Mr. Speaker, New Democrats are devastated by the brutal massacre and terrorist attack by Hamas, who on October 7th killed over 1,300 Israeli civilians, including women, children, and the elderly. Among those victims were Canadians, members of our communities. The accounts of what was done to Israelis in this attack, including what was done to children, horrifies every one of us. This morning, Defence for Children International confirmed that more than 1,030 children in Gaza have been killed by Israeli forces since October 7th. That is one child, Mr. Speaker, every 16 minutes. That is one child every 16 min minutes. Well, we're now joined by Israel's Ambassador to Canada, Ido Moed. Ambassador, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I, obviously, I want to begin right now with the situation in Gaza, because as you know, uh, there is right now an international call, our Prime Minister among them, many voices calling for the creation of a humanitarian corridor to get pr provisions of food, water, medicine to, to uh, Palestinian people who had nothing to do with the Hamas attack. Is Israel responding to that? Will Israel respond to that? 
Israel is responding to this incessant attack by Hamas terrorist organization against its population. As we speak, rockets keep being fired at Tel Aviv and other centers of population, at hospitals, at other places. Uh, but Israel is, of course, trying to also make sure that those who are not involved in combat, those who are not part of the Hamas terror infrastructure, are not being harmed. Therefore, we have tried to create uh, passages for Palestinians, first of all, to move from the northern part of Gaza, which is targeted because that's where the center point of the Hamas terrorist organization is, is centered amongst the population. So we try to remove the population and encourage them to move southwards and also to create from the south, coming from the Egyptian uh, border, some humanitarian uh, corridors to allow for aid to come in. We are very much aware of the international community's efforts in that regard, but we also ask the international community to consider the humanitarian situation of the refugee, of the hostages, of the 199, that's the number that we have at the moment, hostages that are being held in who knows what kind of conditions, in tunnels and wherever, by Hamas terrorists. I think that this, the international community, should also call immediately and unconditionally for the release of these hostages. I completely understand Israel's desire to, to end the Hamas threat once and for all. But, but as you say that, as you know, uh, according to, to numbers, and this is from authorities in Gaza, more than 2,700 people have been killed. They say a quarter of those have been children. Can you really move into Gaza with not, without harming innocent civilians who had nothing to do with the Hamas attack? We are trying. The difference between Israel and Hamas is that Hamas puts their civilians as human shields in harm's way, and Israel is trying to get civilians out of harm's way. It's as simple as that. I wouldn't know about the numbers, but I have seen pictures of Israeli children that were killed by Hamas in, uh, in, 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 in uh, information that provide, was provided by Palestinians. So I wouldn't know about those numbers, but I would certainly try to verify them. Whatever the number is, casualties are casualties, and we are trying to make sure that they are as minimal as possible. However, we are fighting a war. And in a war, you wouldn't say to the United States, stop the war on September the 12th, 2001, after the bombing of the Twin Towers. So at the same time here, we have to wage this war against Hamas incessantly, fully, and make sure that their infrastructure is eradicated and they don't pose a threat to Israel anymore. What does that mean, though? Does that mean a, a ground invasion where you destroy the infrastructure in the northern part of Gaza and then leave? Or does that mean a reoccupation of the territory? It means to do whatever it takes to remove that threat. We've had in the past some rounds of shootings, uh, and they were, they were contained some way or another. But what has happened now is completely different scale. The number of Israeli casualties is beyond the 5,000. If you count the dead and the wounded, it's incredible. It's a number that we cannot still digest. It's just unimaginable. So what we want to make sure is that there is no Hamas infrastructure, there is no Hamas threat against Israel anymore. And we'll do whatever it takes to eradicate it. You know, I, I'm asking about Gaza right now, but you, you, you turn it back to the situation in Israel. So, so do tell us a bit about how the attack affected the Israeli people and continues to affect the Israeli people. Israel is in a sort of a trauma right now. When you talk to people, everybody's pitching in, everybody's fighting together, everybody's helping everybody, religious or not, or not religious, orthodox, ultra-orthodox, Arabs, Muslims, Christians, everybody's helping everybody. 
because we have to remember that the victims in this war on the Israeli side were also all kinds of people from all around the world, by the way, 42 countries. So we are in it together. Uh, whether there are differences, maybe there are differences of opinion, that's all disappeared. We know that this is a war that we have to survive and win. And we will win because we are very strong. But the price is going to be high. Most probably, we've paid already a very high price. We want to make sure that it ends there, and this has to end right now. Well, certainly the prime minister of this country uh, says Israel has the right to defend itself. Uh, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, went even further by saying in an interview that aired last night that Israel has the right to defend itself against what he described as evil. But that said, given that innocence will be, and you know, the euphemism is collateral damage in any ground invasion, are you worried about losing international support? Our concern is to eliminate the threat against Israeli population, against Israeli territory. We are at war. This is what concerns us right now. This is what Prime Minister also made clear to everybody in his statements, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and this is what's on our minds right now. We have the international support. We have a very broad support. We have very strong support and solid support from our friend and ally Canada, and we appreciate that very much. And we know we are fighting a right and just war because it is against evil. Just imagine what has happened, and I don't want to go into graphics, but it's horrifying. And so it's not a war against Palestinians. It's a war against a terrorist organization that has become a monster that has used the, the funds and the resources that were allocated for the people of Gaza to build a huge and most uh, fatal machine to kill people uh, indiscriminately. And it actually poses a threat to all of us because when you talk about the incitement and the hatred and the brainwashing that those terrorists uh, endured at some point in their lives, you get to understand that to create such monsters takes a long time. And something went completely wrong in the work that has been done with the Gaza Strip because the population there does not support Hamas but doesn't have any choice. They were just abducted by Hamas in their own way uh, as, as perhaps uh, people in Israel. But when you look at the Israeli hostages that are being held there and you know the atrocities that took place under the hands of these monsters in Israel, our, our immediate uh, focus is to the immediate release of the hostages, and I think that all governments around the world should also call for that right now. Are you at all concerned that by moving into Gaza you, you may create a wider conflict? And by that I'm thinking about Hezbollah, because they've already started the, their own actions uh, along the northern border of Israel uh, because of what is happening currently. I have to look at it from a broader perspective about when we talk about Hezbollah, because both Hamas and Hezbollah are somehow connected, not just by uh, their desire to destroy Israel, but by the fact that there is most probably another country behind them that provides them with munitions, that provides them with guidance and technologies, and actually plays a very dangerous game in the whole Middle East region. So when a foreign minister of Iran threatens Israel, that if it continues its attacks in the Gaza Strip, Hezbollah will attack from the north, that's something that we have to take seriously because we know that Iran is very much involved. We know that Iran leadership is also directly personally involved in this combat, in this war. So yes, this is a definite a concern for us. We are ready. We stand ready. We also informed uh, indirectly our neighbors to the north that Israel will react very strongly if any serious attack will emanate from those regions. And we have seen some, some provocations in the last few days and Israel is reacting 
But for now, uh, the situation is stable, the northern front. You mentioned Iran. You also mentioned the fact that you appreciate the, the support that you currently have from, from Canada. What else does Israel hope to get from Canada in this moment? In this moment, we need the international community to do all it can to stabilize, to make sure that the fighting ends immediately, that Hamas uh, military organization is dismantled and this uh, war does not escalate any further because Israel will do anything it, it needs to defend itself. And I think this is the role also for the international community to convey that message. I think Canada is doing that and we appreciate that, but I think it needs to be uh, done uh, by all countries around the world forcefully and very clearly because this is a very dangerous situation that we are facing right now. Ambassador, I appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Well, from the federal government, we did receive a few updates today, beginning with this social media message from the foreign affairs minister. Melanie Jolie saying, as the crisis in Gaza, the West Bank and Israel continues to unfold, the security situation in the region is becoming increasingly volatile. Canadians in Lebanon should consider leaving while commercial flights remain available. Now, earlier, the minister also reported that 21 Canadians have been evacuated out of the West Bank, the result of Ottawa's efforts to get Canadians out of harm's way. And the Prime Minister did add his voice to the growing call on Hamas to release the hostages. Three of them, says Justin Trudeau, may be Canadian. Of course, the current conflict is the reaction to a coordinated attack by Hamas nearly a week and a half ago, an offensive that left hundreds of Israelis dead, the vast majority civilians. It also includes children and babies, all of whom were remembered today in Israel's Knesset with a moment of silence. Well, joining us now is Yust Hilterman. He is the Middle East and North Africa Program Director for the International Crisis Group. Uh, Mr. Hilterman, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, as we continue to watch the uh, bombardment going back and forth between Israel and Gaza and really the buildup of troops now, you know, Hamas must have known Palestinians would be targeted if they were to hit Israel as hard as they did. Why would they have risked such losses? Um, well, the risk is not only to, to Gaza civilians, which of course we are most concerned about, but also to, to Hamas itself. So why would it want to risk that as well? Uh, my sense is that uh, Hamas, after 16 years of a, a stifling Israeli blockade and five at least five rounds of war with Israel, has come to the conclusion that whatever it does, uh, it cannot uh, change the situation for the better, for the people of Gaza. And so... Uh, it had to go for broke. It had to break the mold and see where the chips would fall um, uh, at, at a great cost to itself and to the Gazan population. I'm sure they were convinced of this, um, but they, they also realized, because also they were coming under criticism from the population in Gaza, uh, that uh, the situation had become absolutely unsustainable and they needed to do something big needed to do something big. So, so does that suggest that this was always intended to be, to, to be some kind of grand suicide mission? Well, I'm not sure it's a suicide mission or that they see it that way. Um, I, I, I think they see it as a mission where they would potentially suffer serious damage. But also you have to uh, imagine they're very uh, well dug in in the Gaza Strip and tunnels underneath the, the territory. And so it may not be so easy for Israel to to defeat them, to ferret them out and kill them, kill them. So 
um, they know, Hamas knows, that it would come at a tremendous cost uh, to, to Israel as well. And that uh, in addition to that, the amount of destruction and suffering that would occur as a result in Gaza might stir the international community, or at least the Western states, into action and put uh, constraints on Israel. And then you would have a bit of a stalemate. Maybe this is that calculation. Well, I'm wondering if it's a miscalculation, though, because, of course, as you know, the United States, Canada, just, yeah, they're just two countries that say that Israel has the right to defend itself against attacks like the one carried out by Hamas. So do those statements from state actors actually undermine what Hamas was trying to do? Well, so after every round of conflict in the past, Western states have given uh, uh, Israel carte blanche, or the United States has given Israel carte blanche for a few days before it started putting on constraints and then uh, helped uh, mediate a, a ceasefire. The same thing may happen this time. Now, we've already seen nine days of uh, air bombardments of Gaza, which have left you know, whole neighborhoods flattened. Uh, you cannot imagine the destruction when you look at it. Um, the, uh, and yet, uh, it's, uh, Israel is allowed to continue it has already uh, forced uh, people out of uh, over a million people, maybe, out of their homes, um, and so um, and still it is allowed to to continue. But it's also because Western states say, well, Israel has a right to defend itself. Uh, it has uh, it, it's even smart if it uh, wants to defeat Hamas once and for all. So um, let's give them the the green light. But I think there is a real limit to that, and the limit comes with. The, uh, the extent of, of suffering. And I can assure you, having spoken to our researcher in Gaza earlier today, um, uh, there is no more food uh, in Gaza available. Uh, there is no water available. There's no electricity. So even if there were water, and Israel restored some in southern Gaza, it cannot be pumped anywhere. So there is no water. Um, and so the situation is actually becoming absolutely catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Now, there's already concern that what's happening in Gaza will spin out into a wider conflict for Israel. And by that, I'm, I mean the fight with Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. But given that those groups get military and financial support from Iran, is there a wider conflict that we need to be wary of? Well, absolutely, we should be worried, yes. Uh, and, and the possibility is very much there. The escalatory uh, cycle can happen in the, on the border between Israel and Lebanon, but also in the occupied West, West Bank and in East Jerusalem, um, where the holy sites are. So, uh, and, and the violence in the West Bank has gone up dramatically in the last week. And we've seen very serious, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, sparring or violent attacks on the Israeli-Lebanese uh, border for the last week. Now, we are are used to seeing uh, these kinds of tit-for-tats attack uh, on, the, on the border. And we've seen since 2006 that both Israel and Hezbollah know how to play this game and not let it get out of hand. But it's a very dangerous game. And easily something could happen inadvertently that would lead to an escalatory cycle. For example, if uh, uh, Israel kills a number of Hezbollah fighters or if his, uh, Hezbollah rocket or a Palestinian rocket hits uh, a, an urban uh, area in Israel with many casualties. Then you can see there's going to be a violent response that is of much greater magnitude, and then the other side has to respond in kind, if not worse. And then, of course, Hezbollah does have Iranian support, Hamas has Iranian support. It would be very difficult if both its non-state allies came under attack 
for Iran to stay out, even though it's clear that at this moment that Iran doesn't want to get involved. And it's clear at this moment that Israel doesn't want to fight a two-front war. Well, we continue to watch. Uh, Mr. Hilterman, thank you very much for the insight tonight. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. Well, to another matter now, because on Friday, the Supreme Court advised Ottawa its Environmental Impact Assessment Act was in parts a federal overreach. Now, the decision was celebrated in some parts of the country, but government ministers said the top court did not kill the law, rather laid a path by which it can be improved. Today, we accept the court's opinion. It provides new guidance on the Impact Assessment Act while explicitly affirming the right of the Government of Canada to put in place impact assessment legislation and collaborate with provinces on environmental protection. We developed the Impact Assessment Act to create a better set of rules that respect the environment, Indigenous rights, and ensure projects get assessed in a timely way. We remain committed to these principles, and we are heartened that the Supreme Court of Canada affirmed our role on these core principles. We will now take this back and work quickly to improve the legislation through Parliament. We will continue to build on 50 years of federal leadership and impact assessment. We respect the role of the Supreme Court in Canada's democracy, and we will follow the guidance of the court and collaborate with provinces and Indigenous groups to ensure an impact assessment process that works for all Canadians. Well, we're now joined by the Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith. Premier, thank you for joining us again. You bet, my pleasure. Now, you know, since Friday's decision, uh, many articles have been written about what the ruling actually means for the federal government's Impact Assessment Act. I'm wondering what you take out of what you heard from the top court. What I take out of it is that the the federal government has been acting in an unconstitutional way. Uh, They passed this legislation six years ago and created a lot of investor uncertainty. And the the Supreme Court sided with us as well as several other provinces who intervened with us, business groups and First Nations, in saying that the Constitution matters. That you in a in a system like we have, which is cooperative federalism, you have to underscore the first word cooperative. And they haven't been. They've been acting in a unilateral way. And the Supreme Court reined them in. I'm glad of it. So now I'm hoping that we can get to the table and we can actually talk about a a truly collaborative way that we can meet our shared goals. Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, in his reaction to the Supreme Court ruling on 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 the Friday, he, he did say, you know, Canadians are better served when people work together rather than going through the court. So do you think that's a change in tone? Uh, do you think that's something uh, that, that has any resonance outside of Ottawa? Well, I hope it is the case, because the the problem that we've seen is that the federal government keeps on passing what we perceive as unconstitutional laws, and then they make us go through the expense and the time and the effort to try to prove that they're wrong. I I guess if they want to avoid going to court, then they should stop passing unconstitutional laws. They should stay within their own jurisdiction. And if they do want to legislate in an area that has an impact on us, talk to us and let's see if we can find some kind of solution. Because this isn't, isn't the only area. Remember, they also want to bring through an emissions cap on oil and natural gas. They talked about an emissions cap on fertilizer. They talked about having an emissions cap on methane. They want to bring through clean electricity regs. Electricity is clearly in our provincial jurisdiction. They want net zero houses. They want also as well to have a a ban on the sale of of combustion engine vehicles. Like they, they have been putting these kinds of aggressive policies out unilaterally without consultation for the last number of years. And I hope that they heard what the Supreme Court said, which is stop doing that and start working with the provinces so that you are staying within your own your own boundaries, your own lane.
Okay, so you know it's interesting that you you raised uh, the electricity regulations because of course you are in the midst of a campaign against uh, Ottawa's net zero electricity grid by 2035 when it comes to Alberta, and you know the Minister Gibo's office uh, did send us a statement, and this is in regards to Friday's ruling, as well as those electricity regulations. Take a listen to what we heard from the office. They said, uh, the opinion of the court does not call into question other regulatory initiatives under development, and we are confident that we are within the purview of the federal government, for example, the clean electricity regulations. Of course, we know how important it is to get all regulations right, and we'll continue to come to the table in good faith to consult with the provinces, notwithstanding some of the rhetoric Canadians may hear those consultations have been going very well. Uh, what's your reaction to that? <laughs> well, um, I can tell you that they have not been collaborative. They have not listened to what we've told them. But I told them right from the beginning, before they even came out with these uh, these regulations, because I knew where they were heading. I said, it won't work for Alberta. It won't for work for our industry. Work with us on aligning to a 2050 target. Um, and they decided to go ahead with it anyway. And so that that is not the spirit of cooperative federalism. And I think Mr. Uh, Minister Guibault should read the Constitution because under Section 92, it says quite clearly that electricity is the exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces. And so um, this is the, the frustration that I have is that the words don't ma match the actions. And so if they genuinely want to talk with us, we have a table set up. I've got deputy ministers who are going to be in Ottawa this week meeting with their counterparts. And we'll see if the tone has changed because I, I think we can work together towards a 2050 target. But I, I remain... I remain firm that 2035, the way that they have unilaterally attempted to impose it, is not achievable in Alberta. We are not going to put our electricity grid at risk from a reliability point of view, and we are not going to put it our customers at risk from an affordability point of view. We want to be able to achieve all of these things together. Okay, so that's the electricity regulations. Let's get back to the Impact Assessment Act, because as you know, uh, both Minister Guibo and the Natural Resources Minister think that they can still keep the regulations alive. Uh, they point out that the court did not strike down the law. They, they essentially just gave advice on it. So with some amendments, they believe the act can stand if it stays closer to what's deemed to be federal responsibilities. If that's what they're saying, what do you hope comes out of those types of amendments? Do you, do you hope they amend it or, or amend it rather or start all over again? Well, it would be nice if they scrapped it completely and started all over again, building it on the right premise. But I suspect, uh, based on what I've seen, that they're they're not intending to do that. But it's pretty clear to me that the court said if it's on federal lands and it's federally funded or it's a federal project outside of Canada that they're funding, then they have jurisdiction. But when it's in provincial jurisdiction, 100% within our boundaries, and they aren't funding it at all, they, they don't have a say. These are things that the Constitution clearly defines. Natural resource projects, as well as electricity projects, are the purview of the province. So I recognize that we have to work together on emissions reduction. I've been putting out my hand to do that ever since I first got elected with my first conversation with the Prime Minister saying, let's align around 2050, and we're going to continue doing that. But they have to stop. Um, acting as if they have carte blanche to unilaterally pass policy without consulting with the people who are going to be impacted. And I, I hope that they got that message from the Supreme Court, because that was the message that the Supreme Court sent. So what do you say, though, because they, they point out to things like waterways, endangered uh, species, uh, in, indigenous communities, those things do fall under federal purview, and they will, uh, even if it's in, what, in, a, in a, pro a province and under that regulation, there will have to be some negotiation. What do you say to that? Oh, and we are, are happy to negotiate with them, but they can't use that as a pretext. The, the court very clearly said that you cannot do 
indirectly what the Constitution forbids you from doing directly. So I don't want the federal government to be cute and to be trying to use some other way to be able to stymie our projects. I, I think what needs to happen is they need to look at what the genuine environmental concerns are always, as we have historically, and then let's work to, to mitigate them. That, that I think is a, a legitimate approach and there's a, a role for cooperative federalism in that, but that's not how they've been behaving. They've been behaving in a unilateral way and they got called out on it. It's not legal and they should stop doing it. Premier Daniel Smith, always appreciate the time. Thank you for that. You bet. My pleasure. Talk to you again. And that is our program for this Monday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night. But up next, Esther Bejan avec l'Essentiel.